Come to have a look at Bramley End, have you? Pretty little place. And a nice old church, too. 13th century parts of it. Still, it won't be that that's brought you, I don't suppose. It'll be these names on this grave here. And the story that's buried along with them. Look funny, don't they? German names in an English churchyard. They wanted England, these Jerrys did. And this is the only bit they got. The Battle of Bramley End. That's what the papers call it. Nothing was said about it till after the war was over. And old Hitler got what was coming to him. Whitson Weekend, it was, 1942. As peaceful and quiet here then as it is now, even though there was a war on. Hi, my name's Tom Jennings, and this is the 24 Frames cast. And on today's episode, I'll be taking a look at Albert Cavalcanti's 1942 film, Went the Day Well. Just as a little uh, bit of a heads up, there will be spoilers throughout the episode for the film. Some people often mistake propaganda as being a relatively new invention, or at least about 100 years old, and they would be entirely wrong to think this. Propaganda has been around for thousands of years. Indeed, the Romans were the masters of propaganda, often portraying their enemies to the people as being a great hordes of unwashed barbarians who were breathing down the empire's neck, ready to sack Roman cities and therefore justify the empire's expansion and very expensive, costly wars. One of the best examples of propaganda I can think of is the Bayer Tapestry made to commemorate and to celebrate the Norman invasion of England in 1066. It is a quite incredible piece of work. If you haven't seen it and you live in Europe, I would really can um, recommend trying to one day make some time to go and see it because it is an absolutely incredible piece of work that documents the before, during and after the invasion by William the Conqueror. During World War I, however, and the various propaganda ministries on either side had a new toy to play with, which was film, and there are numerous examples, some of which I will post on the blog, of propaganda films that showed the enemy to be not only the aggressors but the actual catalysts for the war and this was done by both the Germans and the English. Some of them are hugely invented and I think there is an almost Orwellian nature to them. For anyone who's read 1984 you kind of have this public who are conditioned to hate the enemy on the basis of what the state says and when you see these films, I think there is a chilling echo of Orwell's work in them. The rise of fascism in Europe after World War I was one of the most incredible pieces of political ascensions ever seen. One of the things that the Nazi party were very apt at, and something that Hitler as a self-confessed film fan were quick to exploit was the power of cinema to get across their ideological messages. Now some of the films from this period are sickening in their depiction of Jews and other races which the Nazis consider to be inferior to their own. Some of the works however are undoubtedly 
hugely impressive. Lenny Rusensal's The Triumph of the Will is, if you remove the politics from it, I think an incredible spectacle. And I don't think I'm, I don't feel kind of any embarrassment or shame in saying that it is a film that I can watch and be in awe of. And indeed, that was the purpose of the film. It was to show Aryan Nazi superiority. I don't think it's kind of any coincidence really when, especially when you watch a film like Star Wars, some of the imagery in that film of the stormtroopers lining up in these kind of vast parades clearly echoes, I think, some of the shots that Rusensal accomplishes in Triumph of the Will. Like I said, I think you have to completely detach yourself from the politics of it. But if you do that, I think it is on its own, of course, an incredibly impressive visual achievement. However, the propaganda messages of these films is all too apparent. We are superior to our enemies. And to think of a kind of a contemporary example of this, I kind of I can't help but think back to the last Gulf War. Now, we all know that we are kind of we consume conflict now in the television age, but what I think amazed me about the last Gulf War was how transparent as such the media coverage of it was in terms of fulfilling an agenda of making the Allies look more superior to the Iraqis. I remember an American army spokesman confessing his outrage that the Iraqis had shown some captured American prisoners on their state television saying that it was a blatant abuse of the Geneva Convention. However, the Allies had absolutely no problem whatsoever showing them rounding up and processing Iraqi prisoners of war. And that's be kind of quite clear one thing. We don't know. There was no uh, footage shown by the Iraqi Interior Ministry of them abusing Allied prisoners. They simply showed that they had captured some prisoners. And likewise, the Allies did exactly the same. However, in the instance of showing prisoners, the Allies were in fact breaking the very same Geneva Convention rule that they were accusing the Iraqis of breaking. However, what we were supposed to be showing was how well we treat our prisoners and aren't we humane and nice. There is, of course, a complete contradiction in this. And also what struck me about this war was how there was even narratives constructed within the conflict that was supposed to show Allied superiority. In particular was the tale of Jessica Lynch, an American servicewoman. She was involved in an ambush in Nazareth, resulting in her receiving multiple injuries. She was taken to a local hospital where she was treated for her wounds and kept in isolation from the other Iraqi patients in the hospital. A few days later, the American Special Forces launched a daring raid to rescue Lynch from the hospital, in which the footage of this, of this rescue attempt was shown across the world, showing American Special Forces running through the hospital, retrieving her, and then an American general triumphantly came on television saying that the American military never left anyone behind. However, Certain stories began to emerge regarding Lynch's capture. One was that she had been raped by the enemy. The other one was that she had been shot after being captured. And all manner of awful tales regarding her capture and then subsequent treatment at the hospital began to circulate. It then transpired that 
Lynch's recapture by the American forces weren't quite as heroic as the Americans had tried to make out. What actually happened was that when Lynch was taken to the hospitals, the Iraqis knew that the Americans weren't that far away, and they decided that rather than hand her over to the Iraqi military, they would keep her at the hospital until such time as the Americans arrived and then they could take her back. Lynch, who was assigned her own nurse, who in a later interview, Lynch actually said that the woman treated her as well as her own mother would, talked to Lynch and asked her what she wanted to do. And Lynch, in the pain that she was, and she hadn't actually received any gunshot wounds. Her, treat, her wounds were actually broken. I think she had a broken arm, um, a broken leg and a dislocated ankle. And Lynch actually asked the hospital administrators if they could try and return her back to the Americans. So a delegation from the hospital drove to the American front line, told the Americans there that they had a female American POW who was wounded, who wanted to leave. They asked the Americans if they could drive her to the front lines, in which the Americans, who were concerned that there might be a case of friendly fire against Lynch's ambulance, advised the hospital to keep her until such time they would arrive, which they anticipated would be in the next few days. However, the Americans decided to launch a special forces mission to recapture Lynch and take her back to safety. Now, the cynic in me says that this was a blatant piece of propaganda that was designed to show the heroism and the moral superiority of the American and Allied forces over the Iraqis. And certainly there have been elements with which Lynch has been extremely uncomfortable when talking about the incident, and it has for large part been brushed under the carpet. But the fact remains that even in the age we live in now, and perhaps even more so in the age of social networking, propaganda is a vital tool in fighting conflicts. Now, going back to the 1930s, whilst the Nazi propaganda machine pumped out a never-ending stream of ideological works, things in Britain were slightly different. The British film industry was in something of a slump. It had fallen way behind Hollywood as the main exporter of films to the world. And even at home, American films dominated most cinema-goers entertainment consumption. Having seen quite a few British films from this period, I can certainly see why. Some are just absolutely abysmal, anything with Gracie Fields in it, for example, and some are just outright utterly depressing. However, there was one movement within Britain which has been a constant source of fascination to me, and that was the British documentary film movement, which was being led by John Grierson, and during the period from the 1930s throughout the war, some of the films produced are some of the most incredible pieces of work I have ever seen. Now, the movement had its roots in what was known as the Empire Marketing Board and then the GPO Film Unit, which was a branch of the British Post Office. And these might seem kind of fairly, uh, I suppose, boring and indeed kind of humble um, origins. You know, certainly, I suppose the Empire Marketing Board has a certain uh, ring to it, but you know, films produced by a post office, well, you know, how good can they actually be? But this movement was 
actually influenced by the likes of Berthold Brecht, Sergei Ironstein. And they produced films about Britain that people didn't really either care about in terms of their kind of sociological message or a side of Britain that people really kind of seldom saw. There were films like Housing Problems and Today We Lived, which showed the abject poverty of which many people in Britain actually lived. It seems quite amazing, but certainly in the area I live in, in Manchester, this entire surrounding part was had vast slums of people living with open sewerage running down the streets in houses that were virtually falling apart around them, full of damp and rats and other kind of vermin. And these films really kind of raised the kind of game in getting people to understand that there was a great deal of work that needed to be done in Britain. And there were films like Robert Flatty's Man of Aaron is, although it's not a, um, I suppose, a entirely authentic depiction of life on the Isles of Aaron, it remains a hugely impressive piece of work. And just a kind of quick side note on Robert Flatty, I was... Um, having a debate with someone the other day regarding his film Nanook of the North and Nanook of the North is one of the most disingenuous documentaries I've ever seen. It is full of scenes that were reenacted. Indeed, I've even heard that the person playing Nanook's wife wasn't actually even his wife. It is a total fabrication in many respects. And as I understand, one of the reasons for this was lots of the footage was actually destroyed and Flatty had to go back up there and uh, reshoot a lot of it, which he decided to do by simply reenacting it. And I, as I understand as well, Nanook didn't even ever live in an igloo, but uh, Flatty kind of insisted that this was how it depicted. However, and whatever, I do like that film as much as I do uh, Men of Aaron. However... The movement attracted a great deal of directors to come and work for it, and one of those was the Brazilian Albert Cavacanti. And he had worked in France for many years as a director before joining Grierson at the GPO film unit. One of his films, which I actually saw when I was studying my A-levels, was um, called Coalface, and it was made in 1935. And it is a standout pick for me. It is a grim yet strangely poetic tale about coal mining, and it might not sound much like fun, indeed it probably isn't, but... Even if you have a smattering of interest in film, I think there is a lot in there to enjoy when you watch it. With the outbreak of World War II, Cavalcanti and co went to go and work for various governmental ministries, making films for the war effort. Cavalcanti found a new home at Sir Michael Bolton's Ealing Studios, and it was this collaboration which would eventually lead to Went the Day Well. Although Ealing is more famous for its comedies, I can't stress how important it is to seek out some of the studio's other work. In fact, I did an episode um, on Paul of London, which was a 1950s crime film that they made. And it's, it's, it's a little bit of a shame, actually, because I think a lot of films that they have produced um, don't get the uh, credit they deserve. Um, and with kind of, I suppose, the, the attention being more on the economies. But do check them out, because uh, there's certainly a few gems to uncover there. But when the day well wasn't the studio's first attempt at making propaganda films, there was The Foreman Went to France, which is a tale of a heroic factory worker who goes over to France to get some borrowed equipment and stop it from falling into enemy hands. It is quite a stirring tale of an ordinary man doing an extraordinarily brave deed. The next of Kin is a equally gripping tale about teaching the British public to keep their mouths shut as part of the careless talk campaign. 
as kind of a quick aside, I just want to talk a little bit about some of the other films that were made during the during World War II because they are quite fascinating in how they actually kind of present Britain being at war. Some of the documentaries, such as Britain Can Take It, which was made during the Blitz, is quite horrific, a lot of it, in how it actually depicts how Britain is being battered. It doesn't attempt to sanitise the conflict, and you know, these were times when the populace were all too aware, I suppose, of the cost of the war, but most importantly, these were designed to show people abroad what was actually going on in Britain. And I suppose it's um, quite kind of self-explanatory. You don't really, if you are trying to kind of get other nations to join the conflict, or at least get kind of sympathy for your cause, you don't really want to sort of show everything as being completely fine. You do want to kind of show some of the death and destruction that is actually going on. My particular favourite documentary to come out of the war was one made by my namesake, Humphrey Jennings, who is uh, no relation, by the way. But Listen to Britain is a 20-minute documentary that simply shows Britain going about its daily routine in time of war. It is a lyrical and beautiful as film as I have ever seen. And I can certainly, there is a collection I think the BFI put out, um, it's actually on Blu-ray now, which you can pick up, which uh, as I understand, Listen to Britain is one of those included in it. And I can certainly recommend checking that out. But even British kind of feature films, I suppose, like I could almost call them fictional films, I suppose, were kind of quite bleak in many respects. One of the most noteworthy is by my one of my all-time favourite directors, David Lean, and him and Noel Coward made In Which We Serve, in which the ship, the HMS Torren, is the focal point. Now, again, the film doesn't kind of shy away from showing the cost of war. For example, the Torren is actually sunk. The families of the crew are killed in bombing, and one of the crew of the Torren is actually stricken with fear during the attack. But the message is clear that we will continue going on. Made in 1942, When the Day Well was produced in a time when the balance of the war was still very much in doubt. The immediate threat of invasion by Germany had been quelled during the Battle of Britain, but there was still a long way to go. The turning point in the war had not happened. This was still some months of the victory at El Alamein, which would eventually lead to Rommel being defeated in northern Africa. Based on a short story by Graham Greene called The Lieutenant Died Last, when the Day Well is a strange little film that, although it has a kind of a glowing reputation today, seemed to barely register with those who made it at the time. The film is only briefly mentioned in Michael Balkan's biography and very few records of its production actually exist. We know a few facts about it, for example, that it cost £55,000, but although it was not buried or considered a poor standard, it does seem to have been treated as something of a footnote. Set in a fictional village called Bramley End in the English countryside, you could be forgiven for thinking when the day well is going to be an eye-wateringly twee and, dare I say, naive, safe film. However, sentimental it is not. It includes massacres, child abuse, brutal murder by kindly old ladies and suicidal acts of bravery. On one sunny day, a detachment of soldiers arrive in Bramley End to be billeted with the residents, but very quickly, all is not as what as it seems. Although the men are all wearing British uniforms, there are certain things about them which arise suspicion. Some of the men have children, but are incredibly not married. Others are rude. Some even eat at the table without having their tunics properly buttoned up. Indeed, there is something way off these chaps, and quite soon their ruse is discovered. These are not British soldiers at all. They are, in fact, an advance guard of German paratroopers paving the way for a full-scale invasion. 
With the village cut off from the outside world, the residents of Bramley End have two options. Submit to German command or fight back. And this being a propaganda film, they choose the latter option. With a vengeance. When the day well is as typical a piece of propaganda as you will ever see, its message is perfectly clear. Germans are murdering morally abhorrent human beings who should be killed without hesitation in order to preserve the British way of life. It is not a particularly deep film, it does not have many layers of metaphor to explore or any real kind of subtext. What you see is essentially what you get, but make no mistake, its apparent shallowness is not some kind of sign that it is a poor film. In fact, I actually think its kind of lack of subtext or anything like that is actually part of the charm, and indeed, as I will get to later, a director's result of Calvacetti's experience with the GPO film unit. Bramley End essentially represents a microcosm of England, and I think it's just worth looking at the kind of the setting of the film, because I think When the Day Well kind of takes place in a mythical view of England, and Having lived in a very kind of small rural area before, there isn't the sense of community that people actually think there is. Yes, that people kind of do kind of have a, tend to be slightly more familiar with each other just based on the fact that you're in a kind of confined space. However, there isn't the kind of this, you can leave the front door open when you go on holiday and no one will rob you. In fact, I think these kind of places actually breed a kind of narrow-mindedness of sorts. But Bramley End in the film is a microcosm of England at the time. At the top of the social scale we have Oliver Wilsford played by Leslie Banks and he's often called by some critics as being the village squire and I'll get to him in a minute but there's also the vicar and his daughter Nora played by Valerie Taylor who is in love with Wilsford and Mrs Fraser played by Marie Laura who is clearly the lady of the manor as it were. Below them are the fairly typical social class of the likes of Mrs Collins, the loudmouth shopkeeper, Bill Purvis, the local poacher, George, a young evacuee from London, billeted with some of the other children at Mrs Fraser at the manor house, two land girls, one of whom is played by Thora Heard, a young sailor, Tom, who is on leave to get married, and his father is also the local landlord. On the whole, Bramley End's inhabitants are a fairly normal bunch. Indeed, Sleepy would be a good way of describing this small corner of England. Yet, even in this tiny village, there is a slightly darker heart to it. Wilsford is in fact a fifth columnist, or a Nazi sympathiser, who exposed himself quite quickly as a sleeper agent in deep cover, straight from the very heart of the Reich, to help facilitate the invasion. And in order to overcome the Germans, the village would have to resort to all kinds of brutal violence themselves to get the job done at a tragic cost. The film is not particularly subtle at the best of times, and no better is this reflected in the German soldiers. Led by Major Ortler, they are barely able to contain their inherent cruelty. Powell and Pressburger's film, made in 1941, The 49th Parallel, reinforces the outright evilness of the Germans by having them turn on one of their own. His crime, of course, is rejecting violence and fascism. The sympathetic German would also occur in 1943's film, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. However, when the day well refused to even concede there is any good in any of them, when the villagers are herded into the local church, there would not have been a member of the audience who was not aware of the stories circulating of entire populations being killed in places of worship. It was actually, in fact, part of the German strategy when invading other countries. By taking over local government offices and places of worship, they hoped the local populace would quickly resign to the fact that they were conquered. It's in the local church, however, where we see the true brutality of the German soldiers, Firstly, they gunned down Nora's father for trying to ring the bells to get a warning out, and then in 
to, to quell any future insurrection, they also start to threaten the village children, saying they will kill them the next day. Germans in the Iron Films are completely irredeemable. It doesn't matter if they are SS or regular German infantry, they are simply evil. There is therefore only one good type of German in the film, and those are dead ones. When the villagers actually take up arms and begin to fight back, we are supposed to cheer on their exploits. The Langels even keep score as to how many have they dispatched when the rest of the villagers hold up at the manor house defending a German insult. And everyone goes about the task of shooting the Germans, as if it was an almost everyday occurrence. How are you doing, Peg? Fine. What's up? I shot one. Good girl. You know, we ought to keep a score. That's one for you. Half a minute, now I'll have a go. Missed him. Can't even get a sitting jury. I kind of go back to this Orwellian nature of the propaganda. Fear and instilling as much as possible is one of the key components of it. As Winston in 1984 watches endless streams of films about the dreaded foes, those around him jump to their feet and scream and shout. Although I doubt as intense, you can easily imagine the film's viewers recoiling in at horror at what they're seeing. Priests being killed and the threat of death to children is hardly the stuff easygoing trips to the cinemas are made of, and throughout the film it goes to great lengths to try and shock its audience. One of the film's most brutal moments comes when kindly Mrs Collins, the postmistress, has to kill one of the captors at the morning table. It wouldn't be enough to simply kill him, we have to first hear of the moral sin that the soldier lives in, which we see is the fact that he actually has children but is not married. This appears to be the kin to Sarney's own death warrant, as Mrs Collins proceeds to throw pepper in his face before sinking a meat cleaver into his head. Upon doing so, she tries to radio for help, only for another soldier to burst in and plunge a bayonet into her. Even by today's standards, it is quite a shocking moment. On the one hand, we are supposed to, and are, impressed with the bravery shown by Mrs Collins, but there is another factor too that drums home the rather important message. She is absolutely appalled by what she does. The murder is horrific for her, leaving her visibly distressed. And herein lies one valuable lesson. The British kill out of necessity, not for seeming fun like the Germans do. She could easily be shot, but her salient ops were more painful and of course notoriously more bloodthirsty. He uses the bayonet on her. Now, Cavalcanti actually had the set made a lot smaller for this scene to make it seem a lot more claustrophobic. And indeed, I think it is, you don't, or you don't actually see any kind of blood or actual gore. There is a real nastiness to it. And furthermore, the death isn't kind of lamented in the kind of traditional sense. It's awkward to see, but in the context, the village can't sit around crying. There are Germans to get rid of, and they're not going to go away unless the villagers get their collective act together. Likewise, when the vicar's killed in the church, we don't kind of have scenes of him kind of lying on the floor is simply done very brutally and we move on to the next scene. I haven't much cooked I'm afraid but I've got these left over. You Germans are partial to sausage aren't you? Help yourself, don't wait to be asked. You're a sensible woman. You'd do better for yourself to accept the situation. Well, it's been a very pleasant surprise really. After the way the papers have been carrying on about you Germans being fiends in human form and sticking babies on the ends of bayonets. Sugar? Mm. Babies on bayonets. 
What would be the advantage? That's just what I say. Oh, you need the credit. You don't look at all that sort of man to me. A regular family man, I should take you for. I'm not married, but I have two fine sons who will soon be old enough to fight. <laughs> you don't say. Well, I'm broad-minded myself, and uh, and accidents will happen. Here, that silly pepper pot. I'll do it. I never had any children myself. Mr. Collins blamed me for it, and I blamed him. And then he was taken. So we never found out. Oh! What the film endorses is the sense of collective action. The residents don't wait to be saved, nor do they for a second consider submission. Despite overwhelming odds, they are simply not going to take it. And by taking on the Germans, they're indeed able to halt the invasion in its tracks. It may be a little bit of a stretch to say, but I understand there was a degree of bitterness directed towards the French at the time. I can recall my grandfather asking how it was they were overrun so easily, and you could easily say that unlike Britain, France does not have a attributes of a natural fortress, i.e. the sea. But France had lived with France has lived with the slur of surrender monkeys ever since. And there are a few digs towards the French in the film, and I think I don't know how kind of how seriously we are really supposed to take them, but there is a sense that Bramley End is really following in the exact words of Churchill's infamous speeches of fighting them in the hedgerows and never surrendering to the core. It was, in fact, Britain's overriding message to the world. In short, don't fuck with us, but the film is realistic enough to know that resistance comes with great sacrifice. I haven't had this done for me since I was about six. <laughs> there you are. Thank you, sir, man. You ask me, I think he sprained his wrist on purpose. When I think of those Germans gorging themselves on French wines, it makes me quite furious. That's but I have much sympathy for the French. That's one of the many points we disagree about, isn't it, Nora? Well, they let us down so abominably. I think they deserve to suffer for it. My dear, I don't think anybody's so bad that they deserve to live under Nazi rule. Talking about France, were you over there before Dunkirk? Out to our necks in it. Won't we, Maxwell? Yes. Spent most of our time blowing up bridges the French had forgotten to attend to. Absent-minded fellows, the French. You mean Fitzcolum? That must have been the most unpleasant thing of all. Never knowing who was working for the enemy. I can't understand what a fifth columnist hopes to gain in the long run. Ah, oh, I suppose. Well, that's one thing we haven't got to worry about. No one can tell me there's a potential fifth column in England. Well, I'm not so sure, Mrs. Fraser. You're just the type. So when the likes of the priest get killed and the home guard are slaughtered, I believe this is just done for scare tactics for the audience. Moreover, it's simply reaffirming the fact that in order to prevail, people will likely have to pay the ultimate price. Let us not forget, there would have been an entire generation who would be watching the film, who would have been maimed and killed during the First World War, and would know that war is not a bloodless affair. I think much of the film's matter-of-factness is a direct influence of Cavalcanti, and he was not simply brought on as a director to usher the film through as you might expect from such a kind of studio piece. And you don't know, forget this was film was made with the cooperation of the Ministry of Information. And I think one of the things I do really like about the Ealing films is their sense of individuality. And Cavalcanti's background of working with John Grierson and the rest of the British Doctor movement I think is quite apparent because lots of these filmmakers, when they moved into the fiction realm, tried to reconcile what they had learned making documentaries with this kind of new genre. 
to them of scripted action. And Cavalcanti has a real economy with the way he goes about shooting the films. Now, there are three attempts during the during the running time of Went the Day Well, where the villagers try to get a message to the outside. And although there is a degree of suspense in them, they are not built up for ages. They are, we see the kind of like a little bit of preparation, the attempt going wrong, and then we very swiftly move on to the next scene. But I think where it shows especially how kind of Cavalcanti's documentary background kind of shines through is when the village home guard are ambushed by the Germans. And the scene is shot in a way that we are given little time to prepare for the inherent suspense or indeed, again, lament the loss. The home guard are simply riding along on their bikes and the next thing, the Germans ambush them, shoot them and we move on. And likewise, when George, the evacuee boy, is trying to escape the village, he's shot in the leg. And it's quite horrendous to see a little boy you know, getting shot. But again, Cavalcanti doesn't kind of dwell on it. He doesn't kind of up the tragedy of it. He just simply gets a move on and we get going. There is available the shooting script of the film and Cavalcanti went through several writers on the project and each kind of pass he did at the script he stripped more and more away from it. I don't think he wanted to make a overly sentimental film, I think that was the reason why he was doing it. He simply wanted to show an event occurring and how the event was resolved. He actually, there is a quote attributed to him regarding actors in which he said they are pawns in a good game. And I think that's quite a kind of an enlightening kind of um, statement because you do get the sense that the characters are really just there to perform little vignettes of dialogue to move the story along. They are not particularly deep. But this doesn't necessarily make the characters uninteresting and I, indeed I think there is a kind of a bit of a swipe at the ruling classes I suppose is the, the term to use because Ealing was essentially a kind of a socialist studio in terms of its ethos and following the end of the First World War the masses of Europe rose up against class. It was one of the kind of defining legacies of that conflict. For some of Europe's oldest ruling dynasties, this meant death as in Russia. For some, however, the social elite simply retreated to their country mansions, safely tucked away from the absurdities of workers' rights and women gaming the right to vote. Strict codes of conduct were still in place that included near mindless obedience and acceptance of one's place. Mrs Fraser and Woolsford are representative of this class. However, their function in the film are completely opposite. During one moment at the battle at the manor house, a grenade is thrown in that is going to blow up a load of children and Mrs Fraser calmly picks up the hand grenade, walks out of the room and is off screen blown to pieces. It is both utterly heroic in one sense and almost totally expected in the other. Her class in the oldest tradition is leading from the front and setting an example to all around. Mrs Fraser does exactly what her class expects her to do. The First World War did not discriminate in its slaughter indeed, it was the upper classes or the officers whom were expected without question to follow near suicidal orders from above which of course those under them were expected to also follow without question. Ergo they had to leave firmly from the front meaning more often than not certain death and armed only with a whistle and a revolver to get the job done. However Wilsford is also the villain and the traitor of the piece. Now, Fascism had been fashionable for certain members of the upper classes, including the King of England, who harboured a rather ridiculous notion that he could 
after he abdicated, returned to the throne once England had been invaded and conquered. They were known as Fifth Columnists, and Wilford has been a sleeper agent from the off and ready and willing to portray Britain. He is the yin to Mrs. Fraser's yang, and whilst Mrs. Fraser gives the life without question, Wilson actually seeks to portray everyone leading to their deaths. The hatred the audience feels towards him is manifested in Nora, who is clearly loves him, and who she discovers his treachery, and Julie does the dispatching. Hello, Nora. What are you doing? Barricading the window. It was barricaded already. The latch was undone. I was bolting it. Unbolting it? Nora! The message, though, I think, is quite clear. Fascism is an incurable disease of the mind. There is no chance of future punishment or incarceration or indeed rehabilitation. Wilsford must be killed in order to right his wrong and protect the rest of the village. Nora, although she is again horrified by what she's doing, is able to detach herself from the personal feeling and do the hardest thing of all by killing him. Again, the film is reinforcing the personal commitments one has to take in order to protect England. In reality, there is a very socialist message to all of this. One has to think about the collective over the individual. And we know that this is hard for Nora because quite clearly she is in love with Wilsford. His betrayal is even more cruel, though, because Nora has tried to convince him that the soldiers are in fact Germans. And we know that he kind of tricks her into believing that she's just being a little bit silly. It's extraordinary, most extraordinary. I felt I had to tell you at once. Well, I'm very glad you did. You see, it's not only this chocolate. There was the writing on the telegram and all that Mrs. Collins was saying. Well, there's more than evidence, Nora. It's proof. I'll get on to zone headquarters at once. Wait a minute, what a fool I am. That D-46 that came in from sub-area the other day. Yes? Well, they're tightening up on security. Staging a series of tests all over the country. This must be one of them. Tests? Yes, you remember that thing in the paper about those two men who wandered all around Gerard's Cross, acting in a peculiar manner. They turned out to be security police. But surely they wouldn't send lorry loads of security police to a tiny little village like this? Oh, no, presumably Hammond's doing a routine job, but it simply has some of these security men attached to him. However, we can soon check up. Do sit down, won't you? I must say I should hate to think that we were sharing our dinner last night with a couple of Nazis. Hello? Hello? I imagine he's doing a sort of mass observation, uh, taking a cross-section of every type of the community from the big cities downwards. Hello? Hello? Really, Mrs. Collins gets worse every day. Never mind, try again later. You did give me rather a shock, Nora. Do you know I could almost cry with relief? I may be wrong, of course, but my explanation does sound rather more feasible, doesn't it? She is the closest thing we have in the film to a central character, and I say that in the loosest sense because When the Day Well is very much a collective piece. It's a very ealing thing to do. In the face of adversity, you don't start petty squabbles. You come together and battle through the odds. And although in later years, the kind of communities will go slightly more subversive by declaring independence in small parts of London or hiding vast caches of whiskey from the authorities, in Went the Day Well, they have to come together to overcome adversity. And did you have to admire the residents of Bramley and their sheer refusal to submit to occupation? The Germans have only been able to take over the village by disguising themselves as the Home Guard. Even in Green's original Knob short story, they had the good mind to wear German uniforms so they would not be treated as spies and shot. Such treachery is, of course, the very nature of the propaganda. However, the Germans' deception, of course, is undone by the Germans themselves. 
and nothing gets past the residents of Bramley End with their keen detective abilities. Some of the signs are hardly subtle, German chocolate being one example and the fact that they use their sevens in the continental style. For dramatic effect, obviously these plot devices are meant to move the story along, but there is a case of it reaffirming a message which is vigilance. Anything even remotely out of the ordinary was to be treated with the utmost due care and attention. Although the characters do not admittedly twig these little signs, the result of not acting upon them is apparent in the fact that people begin to die. I would contest that the relative ease by which they are able to defend the village may seem wholly unrealistic given they are fighting whom we assume are professional soldiers. However, there is a natural marriage between the film's propagandist tones and that of the Ealing sensibilities. Tonally, I think when the day well is often quite a messy, as if walking an uneasy line between being deadly serious and quaintly comedic. The aforementioned sequences involving them trying to smuggle messages out are kind of dealt with in a slightly kind of jokey way, including one example where the land girls try to get some message out on some eggs and this kind of silly doddering lady from a nearby village comes along to collect the eggs and drives along in a car with a dog which eventually crashes. It's strangely out of place and indeed critics at the time who were largely dismissive of the film paid particular attention to this, this moment and indeed the kind of daft logic or for want of a better word the unrealistic presentation of the event. There is I suppose a certain idiocy to some of the plot points. Why for example would the Germans have been taken all these lengths to blend in and then taken German chocolate with them. It seems a lazy piece of screenwriting considering both major clues are given away through writing it appears that perhaps the final polishes to the scripts could have been somewhat more tougher. I think critics at the time may have kind of missed the point or indeed felt a little affronted that the film was so overtly propagandist and I suppose I, I can kind of understand that because were there kind of the same thing to happen now and we and like I was talking about that example, I suppose of Jessica Lynch in that it's so obviously being kind of constructed in order to get a very clear message across. You instantly see through it, and I feel there's this kind of a degree that you are having your intelligence insulted. The truth of the matter is the fact that were this to actually happen, it's more than likely the residents would have been quickly overcome, although not everyone makes it through to the end. There's a certain naivety as how easily they can fight back. In the modern sense, I guess it's a bit like accepting the Ewoks, along with their stones and sticks, are able to defeat the Emperor's, in his own words, an entire legion of his best troops. It simply is not realistic enough. For me, however, it is all part of the charm of Went the Day Well. It was made in a time that still fascinates me, and I, I don't think that's a kind of a unique thing to say. I think lots of us have an interest in World War II and its various facets, and certainly cinema of the time was... I think a fairly exciting place for British filmmakers. Yes, Went the Day Well may appear a little bit naive, but I think it is all part of its inherent charm. It is a quirky little film that wears its heart on its sleeve. Some of the lines in the film are truly hilarious, and the, I suppose the the sheer lack of political correctness is in quite refreshing, bearing in mind the times we live. I can certainly recommend checking it out and I'm pleased to report that last year the film was given quite an extensive restoration and a rather brilliant Blu-ray was put out and I had the film on standard definition DVD and I bought the Blu-ray and the picture is absolutely brilliant. I really um, thought it brought out so much more detail that wasn't available on the DT. Decent sound as well, they cleared that up a lot. 
And overall, it's a fantastic package. I think it is only um, Region B, unfortunately. So if you were to pick it up abroad, you would need to have a multi-region Blu-ray player. But overall, it is certainly a film I can recommend there. And I can certainly suggest checking out some of the other films that came out during World War II, especially the work of Humphrey Jennings and the British documentaries that were made. The British Film Institute has put out um, some brilliant DVD packages in the past which uh, there's one called Land of Promise, which is a four disc set, which I got hold of. And that's got some great stuff. And I mean, just from a historical point of view, I think they are incredibly interesting to watch. And that is going to be it for this episode on Went the Day Well. I hope you enjoyed listening and do um, let me know if you have seen the film and what you thought of it. You can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast. You can email me at 24framecast at gmail.com or come over to the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com and if you like the James Bond franchise click on the exclusive page and you will find a ongoing retrospective on those films and those episodes won't be appearing on the feed so they are exclusive to the blog. So thanks for listening and I will be in contact soon. Bye.